Welcome to On the Middle East, Al Monitor's weekly podcast on the big stories shaping the region. My name is Amrin Zaman, and today we'll be discussing Turkey's threats to launch another ground offensive against a Kurdish-led entity governing northeast Syria. Turkey blames what is called the Autonomous Administration of Northeast Syria for a November 13 bomb attack in Istanbul that killed six civilians. The Autonomous Administration and its armed wing, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, deny all responsibility for that attack. Turkey has dismissed those rebuttals and launched a wave of retaliatory airstrikes against northeast Syria that claimed at least 11 civilian lives. Turkey also targeted a base where US troops and their SDF allies hold joint training exercises. The strikes prompted US calls for Turkey against further escalation, amid worries that Turkish actions will undermine coalition efforts to stamp out remnants of the Islamic State. With us here today is David Eubank, the founder of the Free Burma Rangers, a volunteer group that aids the wounded and helps build schools and other facilities in conflict zones. David and his team have been active in northeastern Syria since 2015 at huge personal risk. David, who is a tremendously brave and kind-hearted person, was in northeast Syria during Turkey's latest attacks. He talked to me about what he saw and heard. Welcome to our show, David. It's so wonderful to have you. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. So, David, uh, you're just freshly out of Rojava, out of Kurdish-controlled northeast Syria. How long did you spend there, and when did you get there, and why did you go there? Well, this is our seventh year of going there on relief missions, and we got there in the middle of October, and our purpose was to do follow-up and relief projects all over Syria, all over northeast Syria, rather, including a hospital we're helping rebuild, different orphanages we support, playgrounds, and relationships that we have built and been blessed with all over Northeast Syria. And we were going to leave on 19 November. But we started hearing about these threats of a, a Turkish land invasion and preceded by airstrikes. And we were just talking and praying, should we stay? Should we go? And we finally said, okay, God, if a local leader asks us right now to stay, we'll stay. We were right at the border. And a local leader came up, one of the leaders actually of a, a, a Christian militia group at the MFS, which is part of the SDF, said, please stay with us. Maybe something happened, maybe it won't, but please stay a day or two. That was the 19th. That night, attack started. And that and then intensified the next morning and onward. So uh, what actually happened? Uh, where were you when the attack started? And what did you see? We were in Tel Tamer, and the very first attacks took place, actually multiple attacks across all of northeast Syria, starting from uh, Tel Rafat, way in the west, uh, north, uh, west of Aleppo, back outside of Minbij, and then Kobani, multiple airstrikes. And then we're, we're north of where we were in Minbij, multiple airstrikes that killed Kurds and Syrians 
just um, north of, of Tiltamer. And then over outside of Derek, there were multiple strikes. One of them killed 13 civilians. So I could hear the airstrikes happening just north of us in Tiltamer. And then it got quiet. We went forward. There was already people dead, but there, there was no wounded to take care of. So we went down to Derek, which is past Kamishli, in, in the far eastern side of northeast Syria. And there we came upon this site where blown up buildings, huge craters, burned up cars, where these airstrike had come in, people had run away, and actually only two people died in the original strike. But then villagers came out wondering what happened, because it was a power station, a small one, and they got zapped by the next strike. And that's what we began to see. And then it was day and night. And in the in last week, we had over 80 airstrikes across northeast Syria and heavy artillery. So when you say strikes, were these Turkish warplanes that were hitting these targets, or was it a combination of drones and airplanes? What 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 were they using? In the beginning, it was mostly Turkish fighter planes, which are actually American bought fighter planes, fighter bombers, firing, dropping bombs, guided missiles, rockets. And that was that was the initial wave was was jet aircraft, and you could hear them overhead. And then very soon following them were drones. And then anywhere near the Turkish-Syrian border was hit, was mortars and direct tank fire, like direct tank fire, sometimes hitting targets just 500 meters away across the border. Well, I went to a school that was blown up, a clinic blown up by tanks. And, and you saw the, this stuff? You actually witnessed some of it? Well, I, I heard the tank shoot. I didn't see it impact. And I went to the clinic where it was shot, and there's the hole. And I think I sent you one of those videos, a huge hole right through the wall and right through the clinic. And then we would hear more tank shooting. We'd go to the next place and it's a school. And so, you know, I had, I've watched, I've observed Turkish tanks shoot. I haven't shoot at me, but, you know, back in 2019 when the Turks invaded. This time I never saw them actually shoot. We were always one step. They'd shoot in this village. We'd go over there. They'd shoot in that village. But we saw the results and, the, and we heard it and we saw the results. So they were actually striking civilian targets. You mentioned a school, you mentioned a hospital, and this wasn't just collateral damage. They seemed to be like directed at these targets, the civilian targets. Definitely, exactly directed these civilian targets. Now, I want to put that in context. That's a fact. I want to put it in context, though, with my opinion. My opinion is the Turkish military is not out to kill civilians, because if they were, they would kill a lot more. They could just slaughter Kobani, for example. So I want to be, I hope, fair in my assessment. No, they're not purposely trying to kill civilians. They're trying to, number one, hit any suspected SDF targets. And then number two, if, if they're near, if there's a school near an SDF target, it just gets hit. You know, once you unleash these forces, people on the ground, they get motivated in evil ways. They start shooting about anything. And so I think the secondary purpose is to scare the civilians away, make it unlivable there. Ah, so in that sense, you're saying when they did target the schools and the hospitals, it was just to drive people away, to scare them off? I think so. The, the clinic had been closed, the clinic had been hit earlier in May. I don't think they they care that much about killing people. I, I don't mean to say that. I think that they actually don't really care if they kill civilians, but it's not their main target. I'm not because if it was, it'd be a lot more dead civilians. Main target is SDF, any of that resistance, and then infrastructure. Like the, the school, one of the schools was hit and demolished at night. Well, there's nobody in it at night. The school books is destroyed. Nobody can stay there. No family will dare stay near that village now. And that pushes people away. And that's a secondary result.
So were people really frightened? I mean, could you kindly describe the mood of the people there and um, sort of contrast it with what you saw back in 2019 when Turkey launched Operation Peace Spring? Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I said they're not trying to target civilians, but it, it's quite a fine line. There was just yesterday, a young 12-year-old girl was shot by a rifle from the Turkish side. Well, that's directly targeting. So it, it's a mix, but the feeling is terror, real terror, because when you have airplanes, you can't see, you just hear them after you've, they've gone by you and the rocket's already inbound. When you have drones that you can't hear sometimes and they can hit a moving car, you have no defense. There's no hiding. When you have a tank close enough, you know, when, when a mortar round shoots, you sometimes you'll hear it in the tube, and you've got a few seconds before it impacts. Or even if you don't hear it, it depart, you hear it in the air, you might be able to dive down. But a tank is like, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. It's like, boom, boom, it's on you. You have no chance. And I remember being behind a building that a tank shot, had headshot all the way through the wall, through four rooms of a concrete building, out the backside and through the other wall. But in 2019, yeah, in 2019, when the tank shot at us, they'd go through an entire building. You cannot be behind the building. So you feel terror. And people feel this terror from the air, from the ground. I could feel it palpable. So do you think that the people now today are even more scared than they were in 2019? Or do you sense that actually people are more defiant and more ready to resist? What is the exact mood of the people there? You know, 2019 was a shock to all of us. I just had left uh, on a relief mission. When the U.S. pulled back, I couldn't believe we did it. And then suddenly this on, this onslaught of the Free Syrian Army with proxies of the Turks, with the Turks behind with tanks and airplanes smoking us. It was a shock. We were all in shock and people were fighting and fleeing. We were in the middle of the whole thing. One of my guys actually right behind me, there's a picture of Zao. He died there by a Turkish drone. And we were hit by multiple, my guys were wounded by mortars, the whole thing. Well, people fought back, but then the U.S. stayed. Thank God, at least they stayed part of Syria, the south of the M4. And that stopped the attack. And I think from then on, watching the progress the SDF had made and the more unity or at least understanding between these different groups, everything was getting better. You could visibly see it. 36 new clinics down in Derazor alone, for example, new hospitals, schools. I think people felt very hopeful. Then when this bombing happens in Istanbul, SDF denies it, PKK, everybody denies it. It has no mark of those groups, by the way. I personally, I don't know who did it. It sounds like an Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, ISIS kind of group. But suddenly it's used as a pretext to attack. And when that happens, U.S. patrols have been going around and they just had been there and they left and here came the, the strike and America said almost nothing and did nothing. I think that was a huge, worse than 2019, the feeling was worse to me of shock. Like we built all this up and you're gonna let it go again? And the language that came out of the United States and out of, out of Russia, for example, was words like, oh, we disappointed if you do something. Are you kidding me? Disappointed? That's the green light. So I, I felt a real shock. And then the way the attack came, it was like, there's nothing to do to fight against it. And that the, the, the bombs that go in a 30 foot deep crater through any kind of tunnel or bunker you have and destroy it, there's nowhere to hide. So I felt a new fear and a new hopelessness like nobody's going to help us they're going to kill all of us 
no matter how hard we fight. Now, after, towards the end of that first week, while we were still there, I felt something else happening. And that was a resolve. And that resolve was, okay, you might kill me. I'm not leaving. This, I got nowhere to go. And I really felt this. I felt, besides the evil of an invasion, if the Turks do it, it's not only evil of this destruction of all these people, and Kobani's full of women, women, and kids, but besides that evil, if the Turks invade, they will find, not only that was a moral mistake, it'll be a tactical strategic mistake. Because what you will have done, whereas some people support the PKK, some support the SDF, some are ideologues, but everybody cares about their family. Once you kill their kid and their mom and they blow up their house, they're not fighting for ideology anymore. You've given them no option. They're fighting for their lives and their loved ones. And that's a dangerous opponent. And so I think, I, I hope the Turks have thought about this. You cannot, you don't want to walk into that. You're going to unite everybody against you. So uh, is the prevailing consensus that Turkey is going to launch an operation and that the United States will basically beyond a few, you know, uh, statements condemning, airing concern, will basically let it happen? Is that what people think? Is that the expectation among the people was, and of the leadership as well? Yes, that was the initial, my impression, that was the initial feeling of everything. Everybody. In fact, we face a lot of frustration directed at us, even though they know who we are. You're Americans. How could you do this to us? I could just say, I agree with you. It's wrong. I always try to temper it, though, with this. Okay, America is not a very good friend for you. And it's shameful, evil what we did to, to betray you. That's true. But we're not your enemy. We didn't attack you. And also, if the Americans had never come, either ISIS or the Turks would already be in charge of you. So keep it in perspective. Of course, America's done the wrong thing. But you've still got friends in America. You've still got friends in D.C. among the American people. We're calling out to them. You know, groups like Al Monitor, BBC, people are telling the stories. This is moving hearts. And so there is a pushback. Now, initially, people would listen to that and go, well, it's hopeless. You know, America is just going to let this happen. So the, but, but the real concern is Menbij, Kobani, and all the way east to the, the Iraqi border, that area that, that Erdogan has threatened. Now... Because I think of this big pushback and where General Masloum said, we can't take care of ISIS anymore in Al-Hal or anywhere else. We cannot do this. If you're going to abandon us, we're, we're going to leave that on the side. We got to fight this existential threat. As soon as he said that, there was a U.S. delegation like the next day came to Hasaka and started talking. And then you see this U.S. Um, envoy in Turkey, or I'm not sure how they're communicating, but suddenly you see this slowdown. I can see it. And you see this hope coming up among the people. And this occurred like by Friday, uh, last Friday, you could feel this hope coming up. Okay, the U.S. suddenly realizes they're in trouble if they let this go. They got a big problem with ISIS and other things. And so what I hope is that the U.S., the SDF, and Turkey can some come to some form of compromise or some steps that preclude any further land invasion. What would be the impact on the coalition's efforts to stamp out remnants of the Islamic State in northeast Syria if Turkey were to launch another ground offensive? You went to Deir Zor, the Arab-majority areas, during your latest trip. What did you hear there, David? Yeah, well, I'll just back up. You know, on this trip into, into northeast Syria, we went just about everywhere. 
And uh, we were in Bagus at the last stronghold of ISIS um, outside in 2018 when it fell in 2019. And we fed 25,000 as they came out. We treated 4,000 and wounded. And we were treating everybody. Well, we watched that place crumble. It was dead bodies everywhere, carnage. Well, I went back this time. Not only we drove all the way down without getting ambushed, um, which meant things are working. Places green, cleaned up, functioning, schools coming up. We're going to put a playground in the school outside of Bagus. It was amazing. We were welcomed. Now, these were Arabs. And I remember I asked a local Arab leader, what's the ISIS feeling here? He said 90% were behind them. 90%. Nine zero. Yeah. Well, down in Jerusalem, nine zero, 90%. Why aren't they attacking us? Well, because we're giving you all a chance to see if you really care. And I got a lot of complaints about the American military because I used to be one. And I said, I'll pass them on. I agree with you. Anything done out of hate or violence or pride is evil. But we hope that the SDF, the Kurds, the Arabs, the Christians, Yazidis, and others can work together to make this new society an attempt. And I saw it working. There's over 36 new clinics down in Derazor alone. There are schools opening up. And when I was, I, we had dinner in an in a Arab village that on the walls outside the village, ISIS flag was still there, like today, still there. And I looked at these guys around me with the big beards, you know, and the look, I thought, I think I've seen them in battle. And, but they were friendly. And I said, you're giving this a chance, aren't you? We're going to give it a chance. We're going to give it a chance. And if, I'm only speaking to you today and not dead because they did give it a chance. I think it killed all of us. And I really felt hopeful. And it's not, the SCF is not a perfect institution. The, the Northeast administration is not perfect, but they're trying and they have representation. And so I saw all these positive things happening, but under the surface is ISIS. And there's probably an, an ambush a week that ISIS will pull off somewhere shooting at somebody, but it's very sporadic. And then you have this, this as a Kurdish general here told me, General Hajar, you have the University of ISIS in Al Hall, all these kids just festering in, in prison there. You have these two things happening. That's a separate issue, but they're connected. So Turkey, interestingly enough, horribly enough, did airstrikes against the security positions around Al Hall, where thousands of foreign women who joined the fight and their kids are all in prison, evidently to break them free. That would just be horrible. And then if this land invasion happened, the SDF does not have enough troops to be everywhere to keep ISIS down, to do all these projects, to defend every border. They, they can't. They ought to just put everything they can to try to slow the Turkish invasion. So did you get to talk to any U.S. forces when you were down there? No. Did, did not. Did not. I saw them go by a couple of times initially, but no, I never talked to them. And what about Muslim Kobani? Did you get any FaceTime with him? Yes, we had a very good meeting. You know, I've known him for a few years and I have a lot of respect for him. Not just respect, I love him. He's a, I think he's a good man, he's sincere. We always have time to talk and pray. He's met my kids. The first thing he asked me this time is, where are your daughters? Because they're in university now and he remembers them. And so I have a lot of respect for him. He is doing his best to serve the Arab, Christian, Yazidi, Muslim, Kurd community the best he can and balance all these forces. He's open. He's been very publicly open to negotiations with Turkey, negotiations with Assad, trying to find how do we live in this space together. He's not the same, though, in that he wants some kind of representative democracy. He doesn't want to go back to how it was. I have. A, I think he's a good man. 
Well, thank you so much, David, for sharing all your experiences with us uh, and keep up the great work and hope to have you on our podcast again. Thank you. Thank you and God bless you and thanks for your service. I'm always educated and inspired when I read your work or listen. That's very kind of you to say. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. And that brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David and that you'll continue to follow our coverage on the latest developments in northeast Syria. Thank you and goodbye.